The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, part two of episode number 17. So so in my mind, it goes from, man, we're so lucky to see this person snatch him just with the hoist, get out of here or with the air land. But, but now it's going to be doubly complicated and we're going to commit our ground forces to the battle. And it takes a serious turn in that case for us. Again, that's Shiner talking about his second sortie in this episode, which was a little sporty to say the least. So with that being said, let's get into part two of episode number 17 with Shiner. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, about 25 days later or whatever. Yeah. So I have it here. Yeah. April 23rd, 2011. This one, you're tasked to rescue two army pilots down in enemy controlled territory, 25 miles east of Bagram. So you navigated your aircraft around the enemy position to the crash site and began recovery operations. And during the initial insertion, you received enemy fire, striking the cabin and injuring one of your flight engineers. So can you kick off the day where you sit in alert or are you guys tasked with a mission that day? Yeah, so we were sitting alert. I was asleep on the crew couch, kind of like sleeping on my arm that fell asleep. And somebody runs in, it's dark, and they're like, hey, fallen angel, which is the the code, right, for uh, downed aircraft. And usually we're doing CASAVAC. We're always on CSAR alert, but we, you know, it's such a rare event that it's usually a false positive, right? And so I'm like, hey, fallen angel, like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, let's get to the aircraft. So we get to the aircraft, and it was kind of cool. Well, I wouldn't say it's cool, but. When that aircraft went down, their wingman called for Pedro, just was our call sign. And they just called for Air Force Rescue straight away. And so when the chaos called our DO, they said, hey, a Pedro's down. And he runs outside and he looks at all three of our aircraft and he runs back and he's like, nope, we're all here. We're good. <laughs> what, uh, is somebody else down? And they're like, oh yeah, no, looks like a, a army helicopter's gone down and they're asking for Pedro. And so we launch and we... We have an initial approximate location. It's about, you know, 25, 30 minutes from Bagram. It was in the French controlled AO and pretty rugged terrain up there, RC East, the, the mountainous area of Afghanistan. And so we launch and we're chalked to same crew as the month before, test fire our weapons, all four of them work, which is great. We enter, we've got strike eagles overhead. And we've got another Army Kiowa overhead. And I think at this time an Apache as well. And the aircraft that went down was an OH-58 Delta Army Kiowa. So a very lightweight Army attack helicopter. And they're flying a familiarization flight of the local area. So they were a mixed crew. And they took a one in a thousand shot off a, off a ridge. 
and pilot flew it well enough to save the co-pilot's life as they crashed pilot was killed in the crash and so the co egresses can't get the pilot out and then decides to basically defend the aircraft with his m4 but he's got a broken back and a fractured jaw and he climbs 500 vertical feet and then does an overwatch of the the downed aircraft with his weapon and is getting on the radio and as we turn the corner basically NBGs, we see his strobe going off and hear the Apache talking to us, see him lazing him. And I mean, to me at that point in time, it's just like a movie. I was like, this is amazing. We're so lucky we see the survivor. We're going to commit right away to get him out because the fear is, you know, you can't talk to the survivor. You can't find him and or you see him and then you can't see him. But in this case, we see him, IR strobe. Lead goes in and realizes at this point that that survivor is separated from the aircraft. And you never want to split your forces, typically, in this case, our ground team of, of pararescue. But we did not think it was like vertically separated by such rugged terrain. And so they stayed in the zone with the co pilot, and we then were. Sp- were spun in as chalk two to the crash site. There's obviously confusion that's going on and there's some things you're overcoming, just like there's survivors up the hill and the crash sites 500 meters away, right? How did you guys navigate and like narrow that down? Is it purely like you're seeing his strobe and like, how do you know that's him versus like an enemy strobe? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this is, if you have an on-scene commander, basically a wingman who can keep chain of custody visually, that's basically what happened here in that Apache uh, secure radios with us was just certain that was the co-pilot or one of the pilots. Right. And uh, we were integrated with that Apache at that point. So we just used that person as the on-scene commander chain of custody since the crash. And we're very confident that that was not a spoofer or a, a star trap to get that pilot with the IR strobe out. So we're very confident that that was that person And then as they're trying to hoist him up, you start hearing, hey, trapped in the wreckage, trapped in the wreckage. And we shift. Oh, got it. Okay. So it's going to be probably have to put in both our pararescue teams. And we have some power tools that they can use to get dudes out of uh, armor or aircraft. And so we're we're kind of expecting. so, So in my mind, it goes from, man, we're so lucky to see this person snatch him just with the hoist get out of here or with an air land but but now it's going to be doubly complicated and we're going to commit our ground forces to the battle and it takes a serious turn in that case for us so for you guys you're putting down by the crash site right then and dropping the pjs off so they can work is my am i understanding that correctly right so at this point in time flight lead infilled their combat rescue officer and their two pararescue men via a hoist to the co-pilot and directed us to spin to the zone to the crash site. And then our pararescue is going to overland, move, and link up. And so at that point in time, it's just getting to be dawn, but it's still dark. And for some reason, I look down and I see the rotor system in the crash Kiowa. And I'm the only crew member that sees it. And so I take the controls, spin into the zone there, and it's super rugged terrain with the hill to one side. 
the hoist is on the outside of the terrain. So we have to be even higher for that angle to work. And we do like a 150 foot hoist to get our two PJs into the zone there. And right as we infill our two PJs, we took very effective sniper fire and went straight through the floor and through our flight engineer's leg. And he just calls FE hit as we react to that fire and lay some suppressing fire down from the other side and go around. And at that point, I'm taking off into the rising sun with PNVGs on. So four goggled NVGs staring into the sun with the crew member wounded. I'm blind on flight lead and somebody else wires. And there's these big gondola cables strung across the valley that they would uh, transfer stuff across this pretty rugged river. And I couldn't even see them. And I just was telling lead, hey, I'm blind. I don't want to hit you. We took fire. Crew members wounded. Try not to hit these wires. And I'm staring at the sun on night vision goggles and I'm trying to slap off my helmet so I, I can uh, uh, see, basically. Uh, flight lead says, hey, we're saddled off you. We're not going to hit you. Just keep flying. And we'd had a good friend, a pilot wounded, who had been flown back. And there were some good lessons learned from that. And we had talked about if a crew member was wounded, kind of what to do if the mission permitted. And this is, you know, per that space and time in Afghanistan conditions and all that support assets. But my friend kind of had this joke. He's like, well, if it's CSAR, if you can take out the, the combat in the search and just do the rescue and they're a crew member, it's pretty simple. You just fly them straight to the hospital. Right. And so that's where we were at. And uh, me, me and Phil, my, uh, the pilot, we agreed, Hey, yeah, we're going to fly him straight to the hospital. So we go straight to Bagram. they send around an F-15 and a C-17 and let us land straight to the medical station. And it's the only time uh, after 50 drop-offs there, maybe a hundred, I don't know, uh, that the, we weren't met by medical staff. So <laughs> classic, Classic. Me and the PJ, or sorry, me, our PJs are on the ground, right? So our gunner is treating our flight engineer. Our flight engineer probably weighs 300 pounds with his gear. So my gunner and I pick him up and we have to run him 50 to 100 meters up into the ER. And a Marine Prowler pilot wakes up out of his tent and runs over to help us in his underwear. So three of us are carrying Jim up, trying not to hurt him. Super brave dude. And he's, he's gutting through it. And we get to this padlock at the gate at the hospital. And I'm like, I don't know the code. The PJs know the code. I don't know the code. And I look at my M9 on my vest. And I'm like, well, I could try to shoot the lock open. <laughs> and I'm like, that's probably a terrible idea. Right as nurses show up um, and open the gate for us. So thank God I didn't have to solve that problem. <laughs> and Send the base into lockdown. Yeah, exactly. With a maniac pilot trying to <laughs> charge the hospital. Uh so then we drop our flight engineer off the hospital. I run back, I'm strapping in and my, our gunner's still in the, the hospital. I'm like, Oh no. And we're, we're covered in blood from, from our flight engineer. So I run back in and they're trying to cut his vest and flight suit off. And I run in and it's an operating room um, with a, a army surgeon and she's trying to cut his vest off. And I'm like, uh, hey, Gonzo, are you wounded? And he says, no. I'm like, okay, come with me then. It's time to go. And 
and I'm yelling and the surgeon, she's a colonel, looks at me and she's like, do not raise your voice in my operating room. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. And uh, sorry, ma'am. And I grab my gunner and we run back to the helicopter and they worked hard to save our, our FE's life. And then we had fantastic leadership this whole mission. And they say, hey, fly without your flight engineer, do a battle damage check, and then come pick up a spare and get back to the fight. So I grabbed this Chinook maintenance crew as the, the rest of our crew is hot gassing. And I grabbed these dudes. and I'm like, hey, come with me and count the bullet holes in my aircraft and tell me how many you get. Count them independently and let's see if we get the same number. And so um, there had been blood sprayed on the tail through one of the holes in the floor. It was super gruesome. Bunch of bullet holes. We, we compare them. I thank them for their help. We go get our senior enlisted member who hops on board, having been asleep like 30 minutes before, gets into a pretty gruesome crew position. And before he's even strapped in, we just vertical take off straight back to the fight. And we enter this turning rejoin with lead. And I'm like rotor to rotor, pulling too much torque. And he's screaming at me to torque down. And I can't or I'll collide. And I rushed into this rejoin. And I, I, I finally mellow it out and, and get saddled as Chalk 2. And he's just like, you guys need to calm down and tell me what's happening. And for the rest of that flight, he was this voice of reason that just like kept us caged. Yeah. And so we, we told him what was happening. Um, in the meantime, flight lead had gotten out the, the co-pilot and his three guardians. And our two PJs were still trapped taking fire at the wreckage. Um, so they decide to cover us on one attempt at a hoist expel for our two PJs and the pilot at the crash site. So we go in stable hover and that same, uh, firing position, enemy firing position, probably single shot, maybe multiple shots, but straight through our new flight engineer's helmet, Dang. straight through scuba's helmet, hit the right side of his helmet, conformed around the foam and then went out the left side. And you know, wait, like gets thrown basically between the pilots returns fire with one hand with his 50 cows. We go around and, and that's like our one and a half of what became a five hour mission trading, uh, strafing rounds. So we had a hot mic on the primary, one of the cast frequencies. So we were on a single, uh, open frequency trading a 10 Apache and Pavehawk gun runs with our non JTAC PJs calling in the, the fires off of their position for the rest of the day, basically. I know this happened to, uh, this is way back in your story, but one, I want to highlight the fact of like the NVGs, like the worst time to be flying, I think is the transition between daytime and nighttime and nighttime and daytime, because you can't see with your naked eye and your NVGs are basically worthless at that point. So overcoming that aspect and that terrain, because you got shadows and all sorts of stuff. So I know you guys are working really hard to, to get through that. So hats off there, but I do want to fast forward back to the PJs. So those guys are calling in airstrikes and basically, are you guys just doing self-deconfliction between you, the A-10, the Apaches? How, how did all that go down? Right. So I think we're at 75 feet at one point here. And the A-10s are like, hey, you know, sector west or whatever, we're coming in. And so an A-10 flies under us. We're at 75 feet. And the A-10 flies under us at 50 feet with their gun going and then just 
G pulls straight through the horizon. You see that iron cross as they pull through the mountain ridge. And I was just like, this is insane. Um, but it was safe. We were all professional aviators along with the Apaches. It was uh, extreme in that we, we didn't have a JTAC. It was basically call for fire five line off of the PJs. And it was off of the PJs best guess of where they were taking fire in their position. And they had to stay hidden basically. And they heard voices around them the whole day and took fire above their heads within meters for the entire day, but never compromised their position and really had to make tough choices between kind of doing a last stand. They only probably had three M4 magazines each and uh, decided to use the air assets we had. And so, yeah, we, we deconflicted by saying, Hey, offset to this side, go to this altitude. And then we had a hog team of four and then we had a Sandy team of four. And we also had strike Eagles overhead and we had like MC 12, probably a MQ one at the time. Yeah. Like we had a B one at one point. So at this point in time, this was the largest unplanned mission in Afghanistan history for the U S we had contract pilots who were former, you know, like Oh fives or Oh sixes cruising around right. and they would switch to our frequency and they're like, Hey, it's Bill from this squadron. Good luck, guys. And then they'd switch frequency and fly off. And so we'd get like fist pumps from the uh, retired cadre as they cruise through Afghanistan. What a different world. I mean, it's just kind of it's kind of surreal. Yeah, it was pretty weird. That's a five-hour mission. I'm assuming that's because that's how long it's taken the PJs to get the deceased pilot out of the Kiowa. No. So it's actually us trying to rescue our PJs and we, so flight lead had taken um, heavy battle damage as we were getting us our second flight engineer, their transmission uh, fluid was, was draining out of the aircraft that lubricates the mass, the spinning rotor basically. And it's kind of all bets are off. Once that's dry, you have zero minutes or you have 30 minutes until you're an 18 pound car in the air that just falls out of the sky. Right. And so they bravely stay in the zone, cover us on that one pass. And then they go shut it down and it's bone dry by the time they shut down and they get the, uh, the pilot that survived the crash onto an army Blackhawk to take that, that person to Bagram. And then we're doing a battle damage check and I see scuba's helmet at that point. And I'm like, dude, did you see, this do you see your helmet and he's like yeah don't tell the rest of the dudes i don't want to freak them out and i'm like bro we're pretty freaked out um but super brave guy and we we had a team discussion uh or flight engineers we got all the pj team from bagram now to this french fob and this this french dude runs up as we're having the conversation with a bunch of pastries and he's like they are french they are good enjoy them we're like, thanks, bro. Um, <laughs> it, we have this conversation and we're all like, yeah, let's get an Apache as a wingman and let's go back in. And so we start back up and now our flight lead is waiting to get uh, a ride back to Bagram to get the spare aircraft to come back out. And the maintenance crews who are amazing are getting that beast ready to fly with good ammo loaded and all that. So at any rate there's an army 06 now and an Apache overhead. And, and we asked him, Hey, can you be our wingman for this 
these passes? And he says, yeah, absolutely. So we go in and we get shot out of the zone again. Uh, we're five miles from the PJs and we take fire through the floor. And Phil and I look at each other and just shake our heads. Like this whole village is trying to kill us. Yeah. And the gunner is like, hey, guys, that just went through my knee pad and into the ceiling, but I'm okay. We're like, all right, bro. Um, and then, uh, like, we just start circling, waiting for the Apaches and the A-10s to uh, make it more permissive. And everybody's exhausted at this point. And I kind of, like, wake up out of this daze and start jinking the aircraft, expecting some sort of missile to come at us, get to this ridge line, And we're like, hey, we got to recage. We're getting tired. Um, and at this point we get gas again and army quick reaction force super heroically gets infilled across the river as a blocking force to basically sacrifice themselves to get our PJs out of there. And so they infill this multiple soldier team who had had zero crew rest from their last quick reaction force mission. Those Blackhawks take RPG shots. And two of those troopers are wounded within the first like five minutes of them being on the river side of this village. And one of the dudes is killed. The other is shot through the chest. And so now we keep talking to our guardian. So our two PJs keep saying, Hey man, we're going to get you out of here, but you dudes are okay right now. You're not wounded. We got to get these army guys out and then we'll come get you. And we have the rest of the PJ team in the back of our aircraft now. and for some reason, again, I see this VS-17 panel take the controls to so this bright orange fabric, basically. We, we come into a hover in this head-high elephant grass next to all these adobe or collot windows that are just dark now because it's daytime and there's no lights on inside. And there had been uh, intercepted chatter that, like, and we saw all the civilians leave the village during part of this battle. Yeah, perfect so like, spot. Right. And all the civilians had just like marched out of the village with their kids, which was, I mean, good that that the villagers had left and these dudes were still trying to kill us. We're just trying to get our PJs out at this point. Um, so I pedal turn. I see the army dudes running through the elephant grass towards us with the wounded trooper. And then off the nose, I see at least five muzzle flashes, basically point blank straight into our face. And I, I look at Phil and I'm like, Hey, should we just like get this dude on board? It's another 20 seconds. No, go around. And I, it's a good call. Effective fire straight into our face. So we pedal turn, put the left gun on it and uh, hit it with our, our cocktail of 50 cal bullets. One of which is an exploding round. And we're sawing, you know, walls in half and this tree as we go around and I droop the rotor, I pull a ton of power and you get a low rotor horn in your helmet pilot says hey low rotor and i don't respond with a little collective out because i'm still just max performance so he checks the rotor by just pushing down on the collective and i have this flood of relief that hey he's flying and then i i look over and he's not flying he was just being a bro and checking the rotor so i grab the controls again the fel's wires off the nose and there are huge gondola cables like 10 feet off the probe and i pull in more power droop the rotor again dump it over the wires with the cyclic. So I robbed the rotor of all energy and we're now in the elephant grass flying out with our gun engaging and somehow survived that just outrageous engagement, getting to the overhead and flight lead super 
brave, great combat leadership. It's just like, hey, you guys have had a rough day. And he's on his second aircraft by this point. He's like, we're going to go into the zone now for our for the pickup. And I look at Phil and I, I had never been so grateful to anybody in my life. And I'm like, wow, we might survive today. And then he calls offset, which is our most dangerous, like protecting position is track two, where we hover off him. And I was like, oh, no. Like, did you go, I, I guess you go into like a low hover, like just like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, oh, no, it's even worse. Um, We're going to be this but, flag. Yeah, right. But it was this. uh uh, exposing tactic but it was really brilliant because we just he had this uh play call deep in his mind as an audible and he just effectively used it and so we roll in and we have an apache offset hover on us so it's lead then like we're in a 100 foot hover off him with our gun on the threat apache above us with their 30 millimeter on the threat and the second apache does this perfect perch like a chandel right as lead gets zero energy and the whole village engages us. And so that Apache perching does a return to target and fires a bunch of rockets between our two aircraft and a hover. And we're all just engaging. All the PJs are shooting their M4s and it's just wild. One one of the PJs is a good friend at this point in time told me everybody was just Winchestering all their ammo and he's like, wait a second, we don't have the Stokes litter prepped for the survivor. And so he did like his primary job, which is to like make sure we can get the survivor is everybody else is just unloading on the threat and just tremendous bravery from, you know, like 18 of us from our rescue team. And then, you know, the Apaches and the Sandys and the Hogs and all those dudes too. And our PJs for just being brave and selfless and not, of uh, you know just being like yeah get those dudes first and then come get us we're gonna stay concealed and keep calling gun runs and so then they fire a hellfire off an apache and that quiets it down enough you could feel that in your chest we offset three miles for that shot we offset and then we're able to lead was able to get out the army dude on that pass and then Phil, my pilot, had a really brilliant idea and just took a tailwind because we were really low on gas. So we had hover power, so we could accept that. And it hovered with the ro- the hoist into the terrain so the angle was smaller and we could be lower and got our two PJs out. And as we spun in, the, the hoist wasn't working. And we were just like, oh, my God, like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, one of the converters had been shot out. And so we had to go to backup mode on the hoist. And that a normal hoist is pretty speedy. Backup mode hoist is painfully slow, is especially it? when you're hovering. Yeah, in this super hot combat environment for the past five hours. Yeah, it, and defa- it defaults to the slow speed. Right, it defaults to the slow speed, and our PJs put on the deceased pilot to recover him first and send him up solo, and then come up together, and uh, and we blazed out of there back to Bagram, um, landed did the correct procedures to um, reconstitute the deceased pilot and then got to the squadron. And when we landed, you know, we had fighter dudes from the, that side of the base, the attack weapons guys who'd been flying with us. And we all just, all the maintainers, all our spare air crew. And we just pretty surreal moment, pretty amazing moment to see all your buddies just like, giving you a pat on the back, happy you're alive. You're happy you're alive. Glad you were able to get some dudes out of there. Um, 
and then you look at your aircraft and two are totally unflyable and you're still on CSAR alert. And so we had the spare aircraft that had somehow not been damaged as our basically our aircraft that we were going to take Apaches or fighters as our escort if we had a CSAR. And then we came off Kazovac alert for like two weeks or something. Repair the helicopters or did they have to bring, they had to bring new ones in? No, uh, our maintenance dudes are champs and our gun troops had done a great job with our GAO 18s, our 50 cals. We shot six weapons for, you know, five hours basically. And none of them had any malfunctions. That's, inc- that's incredible. I agree. Yeah, totally amazing. And the sheet metal folks got to work and just started patching these beasts up. They replaced the transmission fluid and the generator that it had drained it out of in the, the other one. And one of our, the, the other shift flew that back from the French fob to Bagram. And they told them, yeah, just don't touch the tail rotor pedals when you fly this back. It's so you, you can kind of fly a Blackhawk that way. <laughs> and so he very gingerly got it back to base and our maintenance dudes just did a Herculean feat and got these things ready to go to combat again. There's something about being down low and dirty in the mess that obviously makes it really real because it is real. <laughs> yeah, it's it's intense. <laughs> well, Shiner, again, I really appreciate you sharing these stories with me. I always like to ask my guests at the end, like if you found 15-year-old Shiner on the streets to travel back in time, is there anything you would tell him to do differently or or change anything? Man, I would just tell him to like ski as much as humanly possible. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, I I think uh, one thing I have learned just through like we I got really good development from our flight leads and instructor pilots from all the way from UPT through Pavehawk training. In like just seeing their maturity, and I think I'd tell young Shiner like, "Hey man, like the most emotionally satisfying response to like initially frustrating things is almost always the wrong answer." So like, take that deep breath, give them the benefit of the doubt, and just like keep calm and carry on, right? And that's the best thing I've learned from rescue. I think that you know, trying to get after it as a youth, I could have benefited from. sage advice i wholeheartedly agree well shiner thanks again for joining me on the podcast people are really going to enjoy these stories i appreciate your time and everything you do thanks man see ya see ya thanks for listening today i hope you enjoyed today's podcast again wherever you're listening hit subscribe and if you can leave me a rating and review over on itunes that definitely helps out until next time don't bring a week afterburn podcast is a proud supporter of guns gear memorial foundation helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.